You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick Community Radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. This is Paris. This is Chuck D. This is Flavor Flav, boy. And you're in tune to 91.1 FM WGDR Plainfield. Epstein, it's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Today, we're going to hear from legendary jazz pianist Herbie Hancock talking about innovation and new technologies in music. This is the fourth part of a six-part series on the ethics of jazz series of talks he gave in 2014. So far, we've heard Herbie Hancock talking about the wisdom of Miles Davis, breaking the rules, and music as an agent of cultural diplomacy and a voice for freedom. Today, we'll hear Herbie Hancock talking about 
another one of his passions, innovating and using new technologies in the expanding evolution of his musical creativity. Welcome to the fourth in the series of Norton Lectures delivered by the remarkable Herbie Hancock. I'm Kay Chalamet. I'm professor of music and professor of African and African American studies. I am honored to offer this introduction. This afternoon, we follow Mr. Hancock into realms of innovation and new technologies. Who knows where he will take us? I was impressed by Mr. Hancock's last lecture, by his technological prowess, this one-time electrical engineering major at Grinnell College. He had extricated himself from an unexpected incoming call on the iPhone with which he was cueing his video clips and teleprompter. Clearly, he can solve any technological problem. <laughs> For a primer, for a primer on Herbie Hancock's musical innovations, both acoustic and technological, one can learn a great deal from his 2013 Complete Columbia album collection. This recent compilation contains remasters of 31 Hancock albums released between 1972 and 1988, eight of which are now available in the United States for the first time. Although all of Herbie Hancock's career has been characterized by a remarkable degree of innovation, this complete set of recordings from the 70s and 80s inspires awe in its testimony to the breadth and depth of Herbie Hancock's accomplishments. His deep engagement with emerging electronic media and his invention of novel musical processes. Following his first use of an early synthesizer in his 1972 album, Crossings, Mr. Hancock continued to dazzle listeners with revelatory musical and technological moves. From his widely acclaimed 1973 album, Headhunters, forward, his music offers a wealth of sonic possibilities, uniting a heterogeneous and ever-changing array of jazz styles from fusion to funk to disco. One can chart a genealogy of electronically generated sound through Herbie Hancock's engagement with and transformation of these resources in his rich musical imagination. Indeed, so complex is Hancock's interaction with rapidly changing sound and recording technologies that the editors of the 2013 collected edition of his work had to include what is called an electric in electronic instrument glossary. Yet throughout his career, Herbie Hancock has always held close the acoustic instruments that from the beginning fed his art, as one can hear through a rare solo album, The Piano, in 1978, or his first vocal album, Sunlight, that same year. At the same time, Hancock has embraced world music, especially that of Africa, drawing on rich polyphonies of Central African vocal music in Headhunter and collaborating in 1984 with a Gambian harp lute virtuoso in both sound system and village life. 
There is no time here to do justice to Mr. Hancock's creative work across boundaries of new media technologies. For instance, his acclaimed 1984 music video, Rocket, or his film scores such as Round Midnight, for which Mr. Hancock received an Academy Award for Best Original Score. During his second lecture, Herbie Hancock remarked, and I quote him, that music in general, and jazz in particular, has always reflected its time, end quote. It seems to me that Herbie Hancock has always been well ahead of his time, which has rendered both the man and his music a creative model for so many. Herbie Hancock is an explorer who has, as he has already told us in an earlier lecture, an affection for the unknown. This afternoon, we are privileged to embark on set four, titled Innovation and New Technologies with our masterful guide. Please join me in welcoming Herbie Hancock to the podium. Thank you so much, Kay. It's been a genuine pleasure getting to know so many of you, and I'm honored and pleased that you're finding my lectures informative and hopefully provocative. <laughs> That's a good sign. From the wisdom of Miles Davis to breaking the rules, and my last lecture about a healthier way for world citizens to forge peaceful connections through cultural diplomacy. We've covered some topics and discussed ideas that are of great importance to our collective future and therefore significant to me in my life. So this week, we're going to have some fun taking a, a peek inside my personal gadget laboratory. And I'll tell you about some new ideas on the horizon. But first, a little history. Because I've always had a curious mind, and when I was a, a little boy of five years old, I used to dismantle clocks and, and watches um, wondering how objects worked. I can look back and see that the rudimentary principles of science and math held an interest even in my formative years. Eager to discover and understand the magic inside these timepieces and gadgets, my parents encouraged my inquisitiveness. But when I took apart my Lionel electric train, my father was not pleased. And I got to spank it. Well, that was back in the late 1940s when uh, this was uh, accepted as a proper way to discipline children. Spare the rod and spoil the child. Or when your father gets home, were very popular sentiments. <laughs> but although I know now this isn't the best way to teach a lesson. 
It didn't deter my innate curiosity one iota. As some of you learned in my first lecture, I began playing classical piano when I was seven, and by the time I was 14, my interest in jazz was aroused. Entering Grinnell College, two years later, practical sense dictated I should select electrical engineering as my major field of study, because I knew I could get a job that way. But in my sophomore year, after some soul-searching and exhaustive work putting together a jazz concert with an accompanying 16-piece big band, I changed my major to music and graduated with a degree in music composition. My passion for jazz overrode all practicality. And looking back, I think I made the right choice. <laughs> to bring the musical world to my ears, I voraciously listened to 78, and 30, 33 and the third, and 45 RPM records and technological innovations that had their roots in 1857 with a phonautograph invented by Frenchman Edouard Leon Scott de Montainville, followed by Thomas Edison's phonograph of 1877. With the invention of vinyl LPs in the late 1940s, music soon filled the homes and businesses of people around the world. And the sounds of Maurice Ravel, Thelonious Monk, and harmonies of the high lows were a few of the recordings that were in my heavy rotation on my turntable, or as it was called back then, my record player. <laughs> Never having totally abandoned my fascination with science, when synthesizers came on the scene, I was finally able to see a pathway for combining my two interests of music and science. And I became a practitioner of linking these two fields together before it was fashionable. Synthesizers use electronics to create a new sound universe comprised of space-age, cutting-edge tones and effects, as well as replications of acoustic instruments. Five years before synthesizers became a part of my rig, I was initiated into electronic instruments by Miles Davis. And I learned a lot about electronic and contemporary classical music from Boston-born Tony Williams, 17 years old at the time, who was Miles' drummer. Tony turned me on to composers like Karl Heinz Stockhausen, John Cage, Elliot Carter, Arnold Schoenberg, Steve Reich, Philip Glass, and Milton Babbitt, to name a few. At one point, I took great pride and being a jazz snob. <laughs> and a watershed moment in my transition occurred in the beginning of 1968, when I arrived for a recording session of Miles Davis uh, called Miles in the Sky, produced by the legendary Tio Macero. Wikipedia said it was a nod to the Beatles' 1967 song Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. So if Wikipedia said it's true, it must be true. 
<laughs> Walking into the studio with the other musicians, Wayne Shorter, Tony Williams, and Ron Carter, I looked around and th there was no piano there. So I asked Miles, what do you want me to play? And Miles pointed to a far corner in the, in the back of the room and said, play that. <laughs> it was a Fender Rhodes, an electronic piano invented during World War II by Harold Rhodes. Interestingly, the original model was made out of airplane parts and was used therapeutically with recovering soldiers. Previously to this encounter, everyone who mentioned this instrument to me or knew something about it had made disparaging remarks and negative comments, often describing it as a funny-sounding toy piano. The rumor maintained it blasphemous to compare it to an acoustic piano. And so I fell into that line of thinking. I hadn't even heard or played one before. And I was thinking, play that toy? So I wheeled it around, I plugged it in, turned it on, played a few notes, played a chord. Guess what? It had a really nice, warm sound. I was immediately impressed with the volume control. <laughs> Something a piano does not have. My first thought was, I could turn up the volume so that Tony Williams could keep bashing on his drums even when I was soloing. It was really cool and, and interesting. I noticed that uh, when I was playing with the horns, the roads actually blended better than the acoustic piano. It was almost like an intriguing combination of perhaps a, a French horn and a guitar. Two of the downsides I discovered later on were that the, the metal piece struck by the hammer can break if you keep hitting it too hard. And it goes out of tune easily. Well, I learned a critically important lesson that day in the studio. Forming an opinion about something not personally experienced, unless it's dangerous to body or mind, is a stumbling block to creativity because it's based off of someone else's perception and not one's own. And I've never forgotten that lesson. It's a fundamental principle of life. And if Miles Davis, one of my musical mentors, was open-minded about the unconventional, I immediately questioned my narrow viewpoint towards the unexplored. And I changed my attitude. Joe Zavano, co-founder of the Seminole Weather Report, and, and I were, were early adopters in the use of the Rhodes piano in the late 60s, but another keyboardist who was a pretty decent R&B singer too, beat us to it by about 10 years. You may have heard of him. Ray Charles? 
long before the advent, yeah, more, right? <laughs> long before the advent of Pro Tools and, and Logic Pro, two widely used electronic music applications that make music editing so easy today, Miles Davis and Tio Macero were making magic, editing raw two-inch tape with a razor blade. Using painstaking techniques they developed to create arrangements in post-production. Tio worked day and night using a razor blade to splice audio tape, copying, recopying, and reorganizing the placements of the segments of music that Miles had just recorded. Using today's modern technology, these formerly crude but inventive operations were achieved uh, are achieved now in mere seconds. But influenced by the French early 20th century composer Edgar Varese, known as the father of electronic music, Tio was a pioneer in bringing these techniques to jazz. And his masterful craftsmanship continues to resonate in the music of Brian Eno, Radiohead, among others. The workshop of Miles and Tio was a fascinating hotbed of ingenuity and inspiration. And their collaborations and advanced editing techniques took the clay of the recording sessions and sculpted them into collages of impressive vision. Masterpieces such as 1969's In a Silent Way marked the beginning of the Miles Electric period and was basically put together by Tio's techniques. Although Miles rarely came into the editing suite, he always made significant suggestions and had final approval. The recordings of Bitches Brew, Jack Johnson, Live Evil, and Get Up With It were hailed as co-compositions between the two of them. Our modern editing techniques owe a debt of gratitude to T.O. and Miles, the architects of production and post-production methods currently used in recording studios around the world. To illustrate, here's a short clip from Pharaoh's Dance from Bitches Brew, where you can hear the results of their editing techniques. I'm kind of guessing at what was spliced. I wasn't on a record, so I wasn't there when they did it. But I knew the techniques that Miles and Tio used, so, so I'm knowing how they worked, you know, I can kind of figure out where they spliced things together to make an arrangement. We use music often accompanied by science to journey into the unknown. People often ask me, if science can inspire creativity in music? Well, in some ways it can. For example, you might hear a new sound from a synthesizer and it can trigger a creative musical idea. Nonetheless, there's always the danger of the technology taking the spotlight at the expense of the quality of the creative musical expression. 
This could lead to overusing the technology and the destruction of the musical integrity. However, there are new inroads into composition that combine visuals, music, and technology that blur the lines that in the past separated the three. In the early 1970s, my fascination with synthesizers and audio tape editing introduced interesting possibilities into the mix when I wrote the film scores for The Spook Who Set By The Door and Death Wish. To my knowledge, composers hadn't mixed synthesizers and orchestral instruments together for movie scores. And I was one of the earliest to explore that path. I, I first recorded a, a rhythm pattern, uh, spliced it out of the tape, and joined the ends together, and flipped it upside down. Therefore, playing it backwards through the playhead of the tape recorder. And the final step was recording other tracks on top of the backwards track. Now, today, this process is a simple, single software command, and, and there's the idiosyncratic sound I produced. One of the instruments I used in that scene was the Rhodes, Fender Rhodes, going through an echoplex, uh, which is a reverberation device. In order to, to do that, I had to, in a way, cannibalize the Rhodes piano by finding an insertion point for adding a wah-wah pedal and echoplex. You can do that today. But after I made that suggestion, Harold Rhodes actually built a more convenient insertion point. And he included direct outputs from the Rhodes piano's amplifier. So his subsequent models all included those suggestions. So, I mean, those are the Rhodes pianos that um, for, for the Few of you who may have a, a Rhodes piano, you probably see an easy way to plug things in and out of it. But on the uh, the original Rhodes pianos, there was no way to do to do that but to take the top off, pull apart some wires, and then repatch the wah wah pedal and repatch the echoplex, and then send it back into the amplifier of uh, of the instrument. And Harold Rhodes thought I was crazy when I did that to his piano. And that's when I suggested, hey, why don't you put insertion points outside so you don't, I don't have to cannibalize the piano. So years later, in 1975, I met Brian Bell. He was my sound engineer and keyboard tech and soon became my technology collaborator. With his expertise, I was on my way to turning my entire recording studio into one giant instrument allowing interaction among all of my favorite keyboards and devices. And there were dozens, all made by different manufacturers, including Moog, Oberheim, ARP, Sequential Circuits, Emu, Lindrum, and Korg. Now, since I only have two hands, my dream was to use one keyboard to control all of these devices and none of the companies were willing to work with me. Tom Oberheim told me he would void my warranty if I tried such a project. And Bob Moog's reply was to buy more Moog's. 
But Brian's discoveries were state-of-the-art brilliant. And it was not until eight years later that the industry would agree on a new format called MIDI, Musical Instrument Digital Interface, that allowed electronic instruments, computers, and other devices to interact, something we had accomplished with analog technology. And Brian was a founding father of fusing personal computers and networks into music. And our relationship resulted in innovations that simulated and encouraged a music revolution. Aside from inventing a system to power and control my instruments with one unit, allowing me to make musical changes on the entire bank of synthesizers, we first built a master clock, a four-channel clock dividing system, which was replaced two years later by a commercial product called Dr. Click, invented by Dan Garfield. Our clock enabled the interconnection of multiple hardware sequencers for master syncing, something no one had been able to accomplish. The years with Brian Bell were illuminating. Our other design inventions included my first portable, custom-made, highly modified mini-mode, the first vocoder for live lead vocals, the first digital patch bay for music, the first empty reader for digital keyboards, the first wireless vocal microphone refitted from one used by helicopter pilots, the first hard disk drive on a synthesizer, and adapting guitar effects for keyboards. Brian and I were invited to Xerox Park, Palo Alto Research Center, in 1976 by the man that I consider the father of personal computing, the visionary Alan Kay. Among other innovations, he and his team were responsible for developing the desktop metaphor and the graphical user interface, GUI. As many of you may know, Alan's work at Xerox Park led to the Lisa and the Macintosh computers. In the 1970s, he said, quote, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. In the 1980s, he remarked, quote, a change in perspective is worth 80 IQ points. He had a weird sense of humor, right? He still has a weird sense of humor. <laughs> His knowledge and energy were transcendent and inspirational. And as we walked away from that meeting, I knew that this technological invention was going to not only change the course of music, but revolutionize the world. I believed the personal computer had the capability to break down barriers and expose opportunities by using a universal language similar to the function of jazz in the early days of cultural diplomacy. Through Brian's influence, I purchased my first computer in 1979, an Apple II Plus, with 48 kilobytes of RAM. <laughs> you know what the Plus was for? Because without the Plus, it only had 32 kilobytes of RAM. If you're just joining us, we're listening to legendary jazz musician Herbie Hancock 
And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. And we'll be back. Well, no, we're not. We're, we are back. We're here. <laughs> I imagine the future of music being intimately linked with computers, once again combining my two passions of science and music. But I had no idea how drastically it would eventually alter the music industry. And it was impossible to imagine that one day I'd be able to carry my entire music library in my pocket and access it with the touch of a button. I actually had a, a computer device before the Alpha 2 Plus. It was called uh, Bali Astrocade. Anybody heard of that? It was a game machine, but you could also learn basic language with it because uh, you'd use a, a cassette machine and plug it in and load in basic and, and learn it. So it really was a computer. So the Apple II came out before floppy disks. So in order to input a program, just as I described with the, that uh, Bally game machine, <laughs> by the way, there were few programs anyway. Or to output your work, a cassette deck was needed, but the outcomes were iffy at best. So Brian learned basic, an early programming language, and began creating an app that he called Cosmic Keyboards. It was designed to store song titles, song lyrics when applicable, synthesize the programming, data, sequencer information, and patching information on individual pages because nothing existed at that time that could do any of those things. So I tried to learn a little basic myself and I subscribed to a few electronic music journals and tried to decipher some of the articles and failed most of the time to understand like 98% of the content. But just receiving the issues in my mailbox was a cause for celebration. And I felt like I was on the cutting edge of a new revolution. And this was a great importance to me. And in, in retrospect, I see how involved I was in exploring, understanding, dissecting, and incorporating these new possibilities for their use in my music. A discussion about in innovation wouldn't be complete without explaining a little more about sequencers. A sequencer records a series of notes in a phrase and gives you the ability to play back that phrase over and over again and you can play it back at different speeds. Beginning with one with a one channel sequencer I could create a baseline or simple song structure. But we didn't stop there. We developed a massive 16 channel polyphonic sequencer based on the EMU 4060 digital keyboard uh, in which I could create entire orchestrations electronically which I employed on my recordings Mr. Hands and Monster. Eventually sequencers ev evolved into the digital sampling synthesizer the Fairlight and MIDI. Always searching for the newest computer-based sequencer products, I now use primarily Ableton Live and Logic Pro, you know, sometimes Reason and, and there, there are many others. 
And Ableton Live and Logic Pro are two of the multifunctional software music sequencers and digital audio workstations. I use them for recording and live performances. And, and you'll see them in action uh, during my demonstration. I'm going to do a few things over there. Um, many people associate me with the vocoder because I was the first to use it on a record for replacement vocals. Developed in the 1930s as a speech coder to scramble and encode communications, it was soon transformed into a device that had a widespread impact on recorded music. The popular auto-tune feature made famous by Madonna and Cher grew out of this technology. So, how does a vocoder work? It replaces your voice with a sound that's input into the vocoder. The pitch is controlled by that sound, and it analyzes your voice and looks for similar vocal components in the replacement sound. When I use it with a synthesizer, my voice is completely replaced by the synthesizer sound I choose. The pitch is controlled by the synthesizer. And the vocoder analyzes my voice and looks for similar components in the synthesizer sound. Consequently, I can use it for singing. When it was time to make my recording sunlight, the vocoder has a, was a feature for lead vocals and became a permanent part of my rig along with a wide assortment of keyboards. I was the first musician to use this vocoder as a complete replacement for the human voice, but getting to that point took extensive trial and error with modifications made to the Mini Moog, to the vocoder, and sound modification devices plugged into the microphone. But I succeeded and ended up with, with a number one hit in England. And not a soul could tell that it was a replacement for my real voice. Uh, and now, let's, let's back up several years to the early 1970s, okay? After being introduced by Miles to the Friend of Rhodes, I began to explore experimental sounds on my 1971 Mwandishi recording and a follow-up 1972 album, Crossings, that was the first of my records to include the Moog synthesizer played by Dr. Patrick Gleason. After hearing his phenomenal work on Crossings, I hired him to join my touring band. When he recorded in the studio, his gear took up an entire room, but his road rig was transportable. Patrick's main instrument was a hybrid ARP 2600. Arps were monophonic, could only play one note at a time, and patches or sounds could not be stored because that hadn't been invented yet. The Mwandishi years were a fertile and productive period in my musical evolution. We were constantly looking for different sounds, uh, whether found in nature or in the devices we used for creating rhythms or ambient soundscapes. And I carried this philosophy with me wherever I roamed, whether it was in the studio, walking down the street, or listening to music. My ears and eyes were always open and eager to inhale and connect with the experimental. And so, in 1982, 
It was the Mwandishi Band concept that made it possible for me to react the first time I listened to Malcolm McLaren's Buffalo Gals that featured scratching and turntables. I knew I wanted to incorporate this cool sound into my next record. Fortunately, I was encouraged to work with bassist and producer Bill Laswell and synthesizer drum machine programmer Michael Beinhorn, who were already on that path. They, along with grand mixer DST, who is now DXT, contributed musical elements including scratching and turntableless techniques, which gave birth to my album Future Shock and the Grammy-winning hip-hop single Rocket. It was the first song to blend jazz and hip-hop. It brought scratching and hip-hop from the underground into the mainstream, and it became the anthem for breakdancers around the world during the 1980s. I'll tell you a little story. <laughs> Once I was told by a person I met on the street that they said, oh, I just came from a breakdance concert, and it was incredible. They had 25 different dance groups, and they could choose any record they wanted. I said, oh. He said, yeah, 24 of them chose Rocket. <laughs> you know what I said? I'm glad I wasn't there. <laughs> 25 times. <laughs> the innovative Rocket video was a critical element in the success and influence of the song. It was produced and directed by Kevin Godley and Lowell Cream, and it's been described as revelatory. The setting is a surrealistic house in London, and the action features robot-like sculptures created by Jim Whiting that dance, walk, spin, and move to the music. I appear briefly on a television screen, which lies smashed to bits outside the front door as the video ends. Now, why was I only in the video for a few seconds? In this video, the robots are the lead characters. The artificial is the real. And the real is the artificial. The real robots were skeptical about the artificial human seen only on the TV, who gets thrown into the trash at the end. Kids watching too much TV. Which also, by the way, solved a suspicion that MTV was not likely to show a video featuring a black artist. Because at the time, only one or two videos by black artists had been shown on MTV. Now, I know that sounds outrageous today. Keeping me out of the video, by the way, was a solution to take the race card out of the equation. But the rest is history. Along with Michael Jackson, Prince, and Eddie Grant, who sang Electric Avenue, we were the first black artists to get significant coverage on the network. But obviously, not the last. Godley and Cream were the first video artists to scratch with videotape. I don't know if you noticed the woman, the mother, I guess, who was walking, she would go back and forth uh, by physically moving the videotape back and forth over the playback head, which was similar to my explorations with audio tape years before.
That's how they did it. Now, I love working with fearless people, the rule breakers, those intrepid souls who are game to pilot the experimental, the untried. He knows exactly what I'm talking about, because he's one of those, right? By developing a cutting-edge way of making art and introducing original approaches to the artistic process that are stepping stones to even greater resourcefulness. As you can see, I brought along my current rig, and I'd like to demonstrate a few things for you. So here we go. I'm going to start off with a, a song I wrote some years ago called Sonrisa. A gentleman named uh, George Whitty did orchestral arrangement around that. But uh, the orchestral arrangement was done with synthesizers. But, I mean, he's such a, an amazing sound designer that he can make synthesizers sound like real acoustic instruments. He's really amazing.
never be Hancock. You thought I was joking when I said I'd take you into my gadget lab. No, I'm I'm serious. Got stuck for a minute. There we go.
We're listening to Herbie Hancock here on the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. This is a live demonstration that Herbie Hancock is is doing.
Thank you very much. I mean, there were, there were a lot of uh, other things I, I wanted to show you, but, but um, like I said, it's a work in progress, and much of this is not done yet. It's still in, in the cooker formulating. I mean, some of the, the visual things, I mean, it's definitely not in beta. It, it probably isn't even alpha yet. But, um, so it's, it's a little bit iffy. But, you know, I don't mind trying things. I mean, we're all human beings, right? You know? Right? So I have to uh, express my thanks to you, because, you know, actually, that was pretty scary. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun, and I hope it wasn't too, too boring, and, you know, having people come in and say, so I hope you enjoyed hearing and learning about how I'm able to blend my two passions of science and music. And I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. It's been a privilege and a pleasure to introduce you to some of the people who inspired me along the way and to share a few of the, the innovations that have hopefully inspired others to explore, investigate, and navigate new frontiers. Thank you. That was legendary jazz pianist Herbie Hancock. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. And that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week.